Let me encourage you to have your Bible open in Judges chapters 12 and 13, however that falls across the pages in your Bible. And I want to speak to you this morning about the mystery of God's ways. As we read the Bible, one of the things that can sometimes be a little bit frustrating, if, if we're honest, is the lack of uniformity in the way that history and events and people are recorded in the Bible. There are so many differences. The book of Judges has already been a good example of that, and, and we're about to see another today. The final eight verses in chapter 12 recall three judges and span 25 years. They tell us next to nothing about any of those men. And then they're followed by 96 verses across the next four chapters, which provide us with great detail about one judge who served Israel for 20 years. The Bible is constantly ebbing and flowing like this in the way it speeds up through history and then slows down through history, provides great detail about certain events and people and places, and then for a while tells us next to nothing, seemingly. And as we find this in the Bible, as we, as we read it, and, and as I've said previously, we do need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to think that God is only really working in these passages where there seems to be really something happening and that the rest is, is just kind of filler. Uh, like, like that parcel that arrives from your online shopping and when you open it, the item that you've purchased only takes up 5% of the volume of the box and the rest is just packing. Be very careful that you don't end up only ever reading 5% of the Bible because, well, the rest just seems to be packaging that we don't really need. 2 Timothy 3.16 is either true or false. And if Paul has got that statement wrong, then we can't be sure about anything else that he says. And that would cast doubt upon the entire gospel, given that he is our main biblical teacher when it comes to gospel doctrines. So as we read through these portions of God's word, which are ebbing and flowing like this, with uh, speed through the history and the amount of detail that is or is not given, these passages remind us of various things. Firstly, the mystery of God's ways. Look at those closing verses of chapter 12 as we have these three, what we would call minor judges because of the little that is said about them. I don't want a God who I can fully understand. I don't even fully understand myself half the time. So if I could fully understand God, he would have to be considerably less than me. And I don't want a God who is less than me. Because all of me is pretty pathetic. And so the last thing that I need is a God who is less than pretty pathetic. 
Maybe you've got more confidence in yourself than I have in myself. But I've got to know some of you and, uh, yeah, (laughs) we're all cut from the same cloth, aren't we? I want a God who, even though by faith I may know much about, I want a God about whom much still remains a mystery. I want a God who, even if he tried to reveal everything to me, it would be so far beyond my comprehension that it really would be pointless. And probably, actually, he knows that that precisely is the case. The mystery of God's ways. A chapter and a half for Jephthah, four entire chapters for Samson, and sandwiched in between, eight verses for Ibsan, Elon, and Abdon. Uh, I would love to be able to say that I found the story of Elon absolutely electric, but we'll have to wait another 3,000 years for that. (laughs) And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then don't worry, you haven't missed anything at all. Let's carry on. We see the mystery of God's ways in the lack of information that we have on these three men at the end of chapter 12. Our natural curiosity wants to know more. But the Bible has a much more serious purpose than merely satisfying our curiosity. There are specific lessons and truths and plans and purposes that God is revealing in his word. And he has decided which things to include and which things to exclude in order that the Bible says exactly what he wants it to say about him and his story and me and how I relate to him. We look at these three men. Ibsan, seemingly, spent most of his adult life arranging 60 weddings for his 30 sons and 30 daughters. We know even less about Elon. And the main fact given about Abdon is the size of his family. Talk about a donkey derby. What a sight they must have been as they all rode towards you if ever they were all together. And what a contrast in Ibzan and Abdon with their vast families compared to Jephthah, who lived the rest of his life separated from the one child that God had granted him. It reminds us that there is no standard formula that God gives us to help us to determine where and when and how and with whom God is at work. He works in so many different ways with so many different people. You remember the other week we heard the word of Jesus to Nicodemus about the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing new birth to this one or that one. But then not to these 
It's like trying to predict and control the blowing of the wind. Such are the mysteries of God's ways. You'll find all kinds of unfathomable contrasts within the Bible. There is a mystery in God's ways. And actually, I delight in that and I'm comforted and assured by that. As Paul says in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That's the kind of God I want. That's the kind of God and saviour I need. It also demonstrates there is no common checklist for ascertaining whether or not you are living under God's blessing. And what I mean by that is that you can't draw up a list of physical things and say that if a man or a woman or a family possesses this and this and this, then that is the sign of the Lord's blessing upon them. No, that, that's the heresy of the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movements and the like. Those who say God's blessing upon your life will look like this, can only look like this. And what do they, what do they point to? They point to the accumulation of earthly goods and worldly success. When Jesus categorically states that life does not consist in the abundance of things that you possess. Luke chapter 12. God is looking at the heart. He's looking for Christian maturity. He's looking to things to, to do with character, as we thought about last week, and how that character is working itself out in our lives. Fruits of repentance, fruits of righteousness, Christ-likeness. The, the actual circumstances in which we find ourselves in which and through which all of those things are working themselves out are also vastly different. We need to be careful not to get too caught up in all of the life stories that we have. In the Bible, for example, some of you know that we're beginning this story of Samson and that's going to cover three more chapters yet and it's a really uh, exciting uh, story and it, it draws us in, it captivates us. But if we're not careful, we can, we can spend so much time being drawn in by the life story of the man, we miss what the Bible is teaching us about the person and work of God. That actually, of course, is what the Bible is really all about. What is God doing here? What does God reveal about himself and his ways? Never mind Samson. What does God want to show me and teach, myself, teach me concerning myself? 
one thing such passages as these do show us is that all through this time, God is actively shepherding his people. Uh, we can't quite be sure what state they're in under these initial three judges at the end of chapter 12. One, t- one detail that's lacking here is any mention at all that the land is at rest, as we've seen earlier in the book of Judges. Indeed, that phrase will not appear again in any of the future chapters. Which doesn't mean the land is not at rest, but it does permit us to suppose that chapter 13 verse 1 didn't just happen overnight which it almost certainly did not. God is with them. He's not abandoning them, even though almost certainly things are not all roses in Israel. In all the blank spaces, in all of the silences, the grace of God is is found everywhere in the text. Despite all that's going on, God is with them. We don't know much about the lives of these three men, but God has supplied them to Israel and they are doing their work. These verses warn us with what follows at the beginning of chapter 13, that spiritual life can have an outward facade which seems to suggest that everything is okay when actually the whole thing is about to implode. Whether or not you see it coming depends upon where you're looking, depends depends upon what you're actually using to measure whether you think everything's okay or not. That's one of the reasons why you need to pray for church elders Because church elders need wisdom and grace that they do not naturally possess. So that verses like chapter chapter 13 verse 1 of Judges don't sneak up on churches and catch them unawares. And we're all wondering where on earth did that come from when we should have seen it coming a mile off. We need to pray for church elders. Actually, we all need such wisdom and grace. We need to be praying for one another in these things. And all of these leaders in Israel die, don't they? And we find our hearts crying out, Oh, that God would raise up one in Israel who would live forever, one who would reign in perfect grace and peace and truth and wisdom and righteousness over Israel, that all of this toing and froing would be brought to a stop. The mystery of God's ways. And the mystery of God's ways continues as we're introduced to probably the best known of all of Israel's judges. I'm not sure 
Is it Samson? Is it Gideon? I think maybe Samson just edges it. Just the nature of the story uh, just captivates us that little bit more, I think. Uh, in this next chapter, chapter 13, the, the arrival, the birth of Samson is recorded for us. And we see in this chapter a miracle to display the miracle of grace. We'll divide the chapter into two. And so, first of all, we'll, we'll consider up to verse 14. There's going to be a miracle to display the miracle of God's grace. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years. If you were reading the Bible for the very first time and you'd started at Genesis and you were reading it through and you'd reached this part of Judges having never seen the text of Scripture before and not knowing what comes next, you'd probably be wondering to yourself, just what is it going to take for God to eventually be done with these people? How much more can God take? When is God finally going to snap and you're thinking to yourself, because I'd have, I'd have abandoned them long ago. Of course, the wonder, the glory of God is that he doesn't. He doesn't abandon them. His promises, once given, must stand. His covenant, once in place, must hold firm because this is his nature and his character. His long-suffering, so infinite that even Israel cannot cause him to be overcome by exasperation to the point that he just washes his hands of them, never to mess with them again. His grace and mercy, so vast, that God is able to continue to bear with them. The mystery of God's ways. Because of the, the mystery of the depths, the enormity of the nature and attributes of God. But of course we mustn't let ourselves think that because of that, that God is a pushover who we can manipulate to our own advantage. The graves of Abimelech and of the citizens of Shechem are a stark reminder to us in that regard. We cannot be thinking that way. The hundreds of thousands of Israelites from this nation whose bodies scattered the wilderness over those 40 years of wanderings, almost an entire generation of the people of Israel who never reached the promised land. So we, we dare not use God's grace, God's long-suffering, God's forbearance, God's kindness. We, we dare not ever use these things to in some way try and take advantage of them or manipulate them. 
but God's grace nevertheless overwhelms us, or at least it should. We notice that there's been no cry for God's mercy from the people this time. That's been a feature, usually. There's been no turning away from their idolatry. There's been no confessing of their sins, like we've seen in previous weeks. There's been no putting away of their idols. Yet even while all that is going on, God secretly, quietly, is lining up the next saviour for Israel. What grace there is in God. And how can we not recognise that very same grace that God has shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here in the Old Testament, that same grace is fully displayed towards God's people as he's shown it to us in Christ. Wonderful grace that gives what I don't deserve. And we see these wonderful patterns developing through the Bible as God reveals his nature to us in the scriptures. And there unfolds before us in this chapter a remarkable but yet not a unique story. We've already had Sarah and Abraham and Rachel and Jacob. There will be Hannah and Elkanah and then Elizabeth and Zacharias in the New Testament. And here in Judges chapter 13, we have, well actually amazingly, we don't even know this woman's name. But here is another woman in scripture, the wife of Manoah, who has known every day the heartache of being without a child. And as we've seen the size of some of the families that these people lived amongst, to see the Lord blessing other families with dozens of children in some, some instances. And yet here is this couple with not a single child. The mystery of God's ways. And yet they're going to know his grace and kindness in a most wonderful way, aren't they? And such is the extent of God's grace that he chooses to show grace to Israel by showing grace to this woman. They live in Zorah, not far from Bethlehem. Now, the story of Samson takes place over quite a small geographical area. So uh, let's just bring up a map for you to have a quick look at. All of the action takes place in the far southwest of the, nation, the, the land that Israel occupies. So there we are, right down by the Dead Sea. The River Jordan, of course, up to the north, flowing south into it from the Sea of Galilee, up in the north of the country. But here down in the southwest is where all the action is going to take place. Over on the coastal plain of the Mediterranean Sea, kind of parallel to the Dead Sea, 
You have the cities there, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod. That's the region that the Philistines occupy. That uh, seafaring nation and occupying the coastal plains. Uh, just coming inland at, at the top of the, the, the map there, you've got Timnar and Gath. They're both going to feature in uh, the story of Samson. Um, if you have a quick glance at the opening verse of chapter 14, you see Timnar mentioned there. And then just travel to the right, eastwards, and there you have Zorah, that's Samson's hometown. And you see how close it is to Bethlehem, and even not very far from Jerusalem. And just to give you uh, a rough idea of scale, uh, if you were to travel by aeroplane, as the crow flies from Zora, Samson's hometown, down to Gaza, which that's where his life will end, in the Philistine temple of Dagon. Um, that distance in a straight line is approximately 45 miles, so it's not a very big geographical area. Samson will live his, his whole life in this region. Uh, from beginning to end. That's where the Lord has him. Uh, and uh, Manoah and his wife live in Zorah. And that's where Sam Samson will be born and grow up. So they're not far from Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And they're from the tribe of Dan. There are, there are three main tribes in this region. Uh, in the southwest, um, there's Judah and Benjamin and Dan, and they're from the tribe of Dan. The angel of the Lord appears, and in his greeting, verse 3, makes clear that he knows exactly what this woman's situation is. And we are left in, in no doubt ourselves, therefore, as to what the condition of this lady is, and what she and her husband have been living with all these years. We don't know how old she is, uh, but they've had no children. And then comes this startling, but not unique, announcement. God, of course, is the Lord over all of his creation. And to bring forth a child from this woman's body is, is nothing to the Lord in terms of his power and his authority. And at the same time, of course, it's everything to the Lord in terms of his grace and his mercy and his kindness. I find there are some real echoes here of the story of Elizabeth and John the Baptist. There are some similarities, aren't there? From the womb, this child that God is going to give this lady... From the womb, this child is going to be set aside and consecrated to God. Uh, there's going to be a, a Nazarite vow in place regarding this child. Now, the word Nazarite simply and literally means separate. This child is going to be separate to God, separated to God. Uh, it's from the, the Hebrew word nausea, which simply means separate. And the Nazarite vow is introduced in Numbers chapter 6. So if you want to look at it in more detail, you can do that later on. Numbers chapter 6. 
And the instructions that are given here in Judges are, are actually an accurate summary of what you read more fully there in Numbers chapter 6. And by the way, you mustn't mistake this with when we read of Jesus being a Nazarite in the New Testament, which simply means that he came from Nazareth. It's spelt slightly differently and the two are completely different things. Jesus was a Nazarite in that he came from Nazareth, but Samson is under a Nazarite vow because he's separated to God from the womb. In the Middle East, in Bible times, everyone drank either grape juice, freshly pressed, or after it had been fermented into wine. In the vow of the Nazarite not to drink anything from the vine was a mark of separation and distinction. You really were a very strange soul not to drink anything from the vine because that's what everybody else did. It would, of course, have also meant that Samson was never intoxicated, which is good. Uh, it's a sinful thing to be intoxicated with strong drink. And it's good for God's people always to be of sound mind and in control of your faculties. But there's much more to this than simply being teetotal. That actually is not what the issue is here at all. So don't allow that to sidetrack you. Because in the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6, even eating a grape or a raisin is forbidden under this vow, as is drinking vinegar. Now, this is the sign of Samson's separation to God and consecration to God. These are distinctive things which mark him out. And not cutting your hair and allowing it to grow long is also a distinctive sign of this vow. A remarkable life, remarkable hair and a remarkable death actually await this child. And the woman too, because she's bearing this child and he is under this vow from the womb, uh, as she carries him, she too must abstain from certain things, verse 4. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary makes this observation. God often begins in human obs obscurity and hopelessness where there is no human energy or ability to serve as a starter. God will bring salvation out of nothingness. That's what he's doing here in the wife of Manoah with Samson. As in the coming of Jesus into the world to be our saviour, the entire process originates in God's wisdom. And physically, with Christ in his conception in Mary, it was from beginning to end entirely the work of God as is Samson's life. Well, having been visited and given this message, Manoah's wife does exactly what you'd expect. She goes and tells Manoah because he wasn't there. And you can't help but be struck by his response. Uh, you might expect perhaps a little bit of a Piers Morgan moment. I don't believe a word she said. But actually that's not what happens, is it? Manoah prays that they might be visited again by this uh, visitor, not because he doubts his wife, 
but because he's concerned to know more about what's expected of them with this child who will be born, he says. Great faith in Manoah. Glance back at verse 1. Look back at Manoah on his knees before the Lord. Not everyone in Israel is at verse 1. God's grace again. The Old Testament is full of God's grace. Will God be interested in that kind of prayer that Manoah prays? Well, of course he will. And he answers verse 9. Mrs. Manoah is alone again. And a second time, their visitor arrives, the angel of the Lord, and this time she runs to get her husband. And the angel of the Lord confirms everything that has been said previously. But then as that meeting develops in the second half of the chapter from verse 15, we discover something quite remarkable. As this couple realise, we have seen God in the face of Christ. If visitors arrive at someone's home in the UK, uh, the traditional thing is you put the kettle on, you ask them if they prefer tea or coffee, uh, you offer decaf as an option, uh, and perhaps Earl Grey if they're so inclined, and you return with said beverages on a tray and with a plate of biscuits, or if they're really lucky, a piece of cake. But in the Middle East in Bible times, and actually even in some places today in the Middle East, that would never do. Oh no. Many hours later, those visitors are going to leave your home having concluded that they have just eaten the best meal that they have had in a very long time. The goat that Manoah is talking about in verse 15 is still eating grass in the backyard as he offers it to his visitor. Let us detain you is exactly what he means. This is going to take some time. This is the Middle Eastern way. Their visitor is happy to spend time with them, but he declines the meal, verse 16. You can certainly offer it to the Lord, though. Fair enough. But when this baby arrives, we want to honour you for granting us this thing, verse 17. Who should we say you are? May I ask your name? Manoah, verse 18, says the visitor. You have no idea what it is that you are asking. And right now he doesn't. It is wonderful. Manoah, my name and who I am is far more glorious than you could ever imagine or comprehend. My name is beyond you. Oh, the mystery of God and his ways. We may know him, and yet we hardly know him at all. The height, the depth, the length, the breadth. We must never lose our sense of wonder at the one who is wonderful. He may bless us with adoption as his children, 
but he never ceases to be the mighty God who is holy, holy, holy. And not much long after Manoah and Mrs. Manoah suddenly realise who it is that's been dealing with them. The sacrifice is offered, verse 19, and as the flames rise, so does this man who's been standing in front of them. Most likely, they've just been thinking this man is a prophet up to this point. And now comes the realisation. The evidence of that is where we find them in verse 20. I think quite a few Christians suppose that if Christ were to actually appear in front of me, then my reaction would be to jump and skip for joy. I think they would actually be alongside Manoah and his wife, with their faces pressed to the ground. We're going to die. We've just seen God. But Mrs. Manoah turns out to be quite a good theologian. If God had intended to kill us, we'd be dead by now already. God, in his grace, has appeared to us in a way that does not require that we must die. God has come himself to reveal himself to us and to teach us and to instruct us. There are things that he has for us to do. This is what God does in Christ, the second person of the Godhead. And he could not be more wonderful. It can be tempting to find all kinds of ways in which we might think that Samson is a type of Christ. But why would we spend too much time worrying about that when Christ himself is before us here on the page of Scripture? The angel of the Lord. Christ has come and is dealing with Manoah and his wife. And they know it and they fall on their faces before him. With Christ, it is possible to look upon him and be looking at God and not die. Because in Christ, God's mercy and grace and salvation are found. He is wonderful. We do not deserve it. We should die. But in Christ, there is forgiveness and acceptance. And in the fullness of time, Samson is born. His name, literally, in the Hebrew, is Shimshon. And Shimshon means sunlight. More of that next time as we begin to study his life. There are many patterns laid down in the Old Testament which flow into the new. Maybe here is one of the greatest of those patterns. Up until now, God has raised up men who could already be found in Israel. But Samson is different. God is going to create and grow his own saviour for Israel from scratch. Isn't that wonderful? And with that thought, I just want to conclude now 
with a few sentences from the commentary by Dale Ralph Davis. He says this, God produced his own saviour from scratch. It is crucial that we see this, lest we think God's salvation is always an ad hoc sticking plaster affair, a piece of divine crisis management instead of a plan that God has had in view far in advance. This is exactly what staggers and gladdens us about the greater than Samson who ransomed us at such cost. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. It boggles the imagination, let alone the mind, to think that something before, in the beginning, could actually be for my sake. Oh, the glorious mystery of God's ways. For surely they must be mysterious and glorious if they truly are to be of God.